0: to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so very grateful that we have your word to guide and direct us, that it is through your word that you inform us about who you are, about who we are, about the basic problem in the relationship between us and you, and that you have solved that through the remarkable work of Jesus Christ on the cross, where he died as our substitute, paying the penalty in full for our sin, that there's nothing left for us to do except to trust him and to rely upon him, and that from the moment we trust in him and become a new creature in Christ, from that moment on, the challenge before us is to continue to to walk by faith, to to continue to trust in you. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word today and continue to reflect upon our Lord's teaching and the Sermon on the Mount, that we might come to a clearer and more precise and correct understanding of these truths and help us understand your grace in the process. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, and this is covers the second and third section in this uh, section. We began starting in about verse 21 down through the end of the chapter where Jesus is contrasting the divine viewpoint interpretation of the Mosaic law with the teaching that had become very popular within Second Temple Judaism during this period, uh, the first from about the second century B.C. through the first century A.D., that was dominated by the popular teaching of the Pharisees, so that people had a Rather, we're taught a superficial view of obedience to the Mosaic law. Jesus addresses this uh, in the second and third sections. He's addressing the topic of adultery and the interpretation of the seventh commandment. And then he is going to go further with that in verses 31 and 32 in addressing the interpretation of Deuteronomy uh, Uh, 24, in relation to divorce. So we'll begin by being reminded of what is going on in these passages. I think it's part of our sin nature that I don't like the word human nature because most people use human nature, what they really mean is a sin nature. Part of our sin nature is we try to see, okay, what's the minimum expected of me? God has some pretty high standards. I just want to know what the minimum is to get by. And that's really what comes across in pharisaical teaching on righteousness. It's it's the minimum amount necessary. And they reduce the commandments to a rather superficial and shallow obedience. Jesus addresses that in Matthew 5.19... By saying, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be least in the kingdom of heaven. And contextually, we've got to understand that as Jesus moves from that to the this contrast between you have heard it said, which addresses the oral tradition which is being taught by the Pharisees, and following that, he then says, but I say to you... Where he contrasts the superficial teaching of the Pharisees with with the uh, teaching or his interpretation of the Mosaic Law, God's interpretation of the Mosaic Law, that we see that that he's challenging the Pharisees that they have a, have minimized what it means to obey the law, they have reduced the application of these laws to certain principles that allowed them to skirt the real intent of the law, and to avoid dealing with the real root of external sin, which is internal sin or mental attitude sin. And so Jesus challenges that interpretation as we go through this particular particular chapter. And so we have to keep that in mind. Breaking any of the commandments, even though one commandment here or there may appear to have less Significance or impact than other commandments. That's only relative speaking. Violating any commandment, no matter how small it is, still violates the righteousness of God and its eternal consequences. Its consequences in our spiritual life are just as egregious. This is why James says in James 2 verses 10 and 11. Last week I went just to verse 10, but verse 11 really applies to these two sections that Jesus begins begins with in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. In James 2.10, we read, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. So if you violate God's standards in what might appear to be a very minor thing, like eating a piece of fruit, the consequences are just as serious in your spiritual life as if you have have broken one of the most serious laws. So in terms of the right absolute righteousness of God, if you tell what you think is just a little white lie, nobody's really going to know, it's not really going to affect anything, that separates you from God just as much as if you had committed mass genocide. Because either of them, while their consequences in time are relatively much different their consequences in terms of the absolute righteousness of God are the same. So what Jesus does through this whole section of the law is he's showing that in the Old Testament, Israel committed egregious sins, horrible sins, and some of the worst happened in the period right before God took them out in judgment in 586 B.C. They were sacrificing their children on the fires of Moloch, they were burning them alive in sacrifice. This was one of the most horrible, heinous sins of all history, violating the Mosaic law. And as a result of their idolatry during that period, prior to the destruction by the Babylonians, uh, during, uh, during that time, um, this occurred in the Valley of Hinnom. We're going to address this again as we go through this, this particular section. God brought judgment Upon them, and the sin was was idolatry. That was one of the primary sins. There were other sins for which they were judged, such as a violation of the Sabbath. But all of these things were really summarized and understood by the Jews as being the fact that they had forsaken God. They had committed spiritual adultery, which means only to go after other gods. Somebody somewhere. Some people get the idea that if you listen to another pastor, that's some kind of spiritual adultery That's not what the Scriptures say. Scripture defines spiritual adultery as going after a, another god when you're unfaithful to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what Jesus is telling the Jews at this particular time in relation to the, what the Pharisees are teaching is even if you, your, 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 your violation of the law is minor, It's just as much a violation of the law as those ancient sins of idolatry. And it's going to destroy your spiritual life and your relationship with God just as much, that God has a higher standard of righteousness than what the Pharisees are teaching. And so uh, Jesus is teaching in this whole context his disciples, that's his immediate audience, and he's teaching them about the kind of righteousness which should characterize those who will fully enjoy and experience the kingdom that he's announcing. Remember, this is coming at that early stage in his ministry where the message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because the kingdom was rejected, because the Messiah, the king, was rejected, uh, the kingdom is still future. It was postponed so that it is still future for us in the church age just as it was future for them. Now, Jesus was addressing an audience that was composed of Jews in a different dispensation. They're under the Mosaic law and the dispensation of the Mosaic law and in the age of Israel. They were promised the coming kingdom on the basis of repentance. That was the message that John the Baptist, Jesus, his disciples proclaimed at this time, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance means to change your mind. But repentance has two ways of being applied. One is in reference to our eternal standing before God in terms of salvation. So for those who are unsaved, repent means to change your thinking and to trust in God and the promise of God's salvation, which prior to the cross was a promise that God would solve the sin problem through the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman was the Messiah who would come and provide a solution to the sin problem. So they were looking forward uh, to the cross. But that message had been refined in their day because as Jesus is coming, he is claiming to be the Messiah and claiming that he is the one who will uh, solve the problem for their sins, and so they had to accept him as their Messiah. So the first aspect of repentance would relate to salvation. Their eternal destiny. The second type of repentance was for those who were already saved, they were already justified, they had already trusted in God's promise of a future redeemer, the seed of the woman, but they weren't living like it. They were living in disobedience, they had gotten away from a relationship with the Lord, and they needed to change their mind and get back on track. This is the message that contextually is being emphasized. Uh, this is what uh, John the Baptist uh, meant in Matthew three eight when he addressed the Pharisees, who had come down to see to be to witness what he was doing at the River Jordan, and he told them he didn't notice he didn't say you guys need to repent, he said you need to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, he's not assuming they're not saved; he's assuming they're not walking in accordance to the Mosaic law. They don't have the right kind of experiential righteousness. So unless they change and unless the people are living in obedience to the law, God's not going to bring in the kingdom. And so this is important for us to understand. Now, the point of comparison for us as believers in the church age and those disciples of Jesus that he's addressing in Matthew 5 through 7 is that like them... We are living our spiritual life today in preparation for our future roles and responsibilities in the kingdom because they're part of Israel. Their future destiny is different from the future destiny of church age believers. But both of us have a destiny that will be affected and determined by the quality of our spiritual life today. We will both be rewarded at some point before going into the kingdom Although those rewards will differ, the principle is still the same. And so the general principle that we need to use to apply from this is that we need to learn how to live a life that is characterized by experiential righteousness. And by learning to live a life characterized by experiential righteousness, it develops our character and our capacity for our future role in the Messianic Millennial Kingdom. We're living today in light of eternity, not a new doctrine, not a new idea for anyone here. But it drives it home that God expects us to apply the Word today. Through application of the Word, we grow and develop spiritual maturity, developing a capacity for experiential righteousness. That is, it's our training ground. Now, we're in boot camp, as it were, getting ready for the ultimate reality which comes in the future kingdom, and so this is what Jesus is doing as he addresses his audience and saying that that the kind of righteousness that you need to learn is of a greater degree than that which is taught by the uh, by the religious leaders, by the scribes and the Pharisees. So there's this contrast between what they're teaching in terms of the their interpretation of the law, which for the last two or 300 years, emphasized an oral law. They, they believe there was a written law that was the Torah that's passed down. But along with that, there's an oral law. There is an oral tradition which interprets the law and helps us to understand it. And that's what they're teaching. They're not teaching Torah anymore. They're teaching the interpretation of the fathers of the Torah. We see the same kinds of things today. You go to uh, certain certain denominations, such as the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, uh, they, they don't read the Bible. Roman Catholics generally don't read the Bible. Uh, how do I know that? I mean, I'm not being negative. I'm not jumping up and down on, on Roman Catholics. Uh, I know that when I was working on my master's degree in philosophy at the University of St. Thomas here, uh, some uh, 20 years or so ago, I had a lot of interesting conversations with the, some of the fathers who taught the classes, and I remember sitting in one class, and we were studying something with related to some aspect of Thomas Aquinas' philosophy, and there was a nun who sat next to me, and she, had, she was in several classes with me, and we got off into talking about uh, one, one of the ways Aquinas interpreted scripture. And it was a passage that I knew and I had memorized and and I made some comments about it. And she turned to me afterwards and she said, that was really good. You know, we're Roman Catholics. We don't read the Bible. Jews are the same way. They have the interpretation of the rabbis. That's what they study when they study Torah. They're not actually studying and exegeting word by word, verse by verse, What Moses says in the Torah, what they're studying is the various interpretations that have been handed down through the ages. In Roman Catholicism, they're studying the interpretations of the church fathers. They're not going to the original text. In evangelicalism today in the 20th century, we're falling into the same trap. in in many cases today, and, and, and what dominates seminary study is it's not important for you to go back and really learn how to exegete the text from the original languages, although they teach that. But when you're exegeting the text, what the professors are looking for is that you have widely read in the commentary tradition, and that what you're citing is all of the different views that are presented by the uh, commentators, our commentaries, so that you know all the different positions. And what, what often is produced today from seminaries, somebody who can stand up and give you uh, seven or eight different uh, popular interpretations of Genesis chapter one verses one and two, but they can't tell you what it means. They can just tell you what the seven views are, and then be warm and be filled. Let's close in prayer. That's modern scholarship. It's going back to a form of rabbinicalism and uh, this where you're not studying the text. In fact, I was told by one professor at a seminary that people like Lewis Berry Chafer, John Walver, Dwight Pentecost, Charles Ryrie we weren't scholars. They're just dealing with the text. So, a real scholar is somebody who knows what all the positions are that have been taken. So we're falling into the same kind of trap where it's not as important to study the text and determine what it says. We have to know what everybody else has said about it, and that's real scholarship. So this is what was happening. And so Jesus is, is stating one thing. For example, in here in Matthew uh, 5.27, he says, You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. So he's relating the oral law. He's actually just quoting from uh, Exodus chapter 20. Uh, and he is saying that you have, um, heard it said you shall not commit adultery. Well, the word that's used for adultery in the Greek is the word moikuo, uh, which is just a straight translation from the Hebrew word naaf. Both words simply refer to the act of committing adultery. Now, this is the second challenge. Remember his first challenge that we looked at the last time was the Sixth Commandment, which dealt with thou shalt not commit murder. Just as the Sixth Commandment was a protection in relation to the sanctity of human life, the Seventh Commandment is designed to protect the second divine institution of marriage. But we have to understand something about what... Adultery was in an ancient Near Eastern context. This is going to really sound strange to some of you, probably most of you. In the ancient Near East, adultery was something that a uh, married woman would commit. If you were are a man who's married and has sexual relations with a woman who is married to somebody else, it's not just it primarily emphasizes the woman in the ancient Near East. Uh, it generally applied only uh, to, to the um, only to the uh, male in the sense that he was not to have sexual relations with a married woman. Adultery was not something that was applied to the uh, to a male if he had sexual relations with someone who was unmarried or a widow, or was single. That would was covered under a different context. So in the ancient Near East, adultery really focused mostly on the faithfulness of a married woman. Men who had sexual relations with prostitutes or with unmarried women were not guilty of adultery, but of fornication. For example, in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 32 to 35, which prohibits adultery, uh, which is defined, if you understand it, is just sexual relations with another man's wife, the consequences that are focused on in that passage emphasize the danger of the woman's husband seeking vengeance. This is why wh- in the Torah, the penalty for adultery is stated in Deuteronomy 22.22. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die the man that lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall put away all the, uh, shall put away the evil from Israel. Now to understand this, we have to understand these laws in context. Because if you go on and read the following verses in Deuteronomy 22, you discover that if a man has sex, uh, sexual relationships with a young woman he's not married to and she's not married, then the penalty is a fine or forced marriage. We can't isolate these laws. Remember in the Old Testament, there's a strong emphasis on inheritance rights within the family, within the clan, and within the tribe. So that land that was apportioned by God to each tribe and then subdivided to each clan and to each family was to remain within the family. So that if a man has sexual relations with a woman, he, who is married to somebody else, he is introducing his seed and his line into the other husband's line. It comes back to understanding the context of inheritance law and passing on property and inheritance rights to the next generation. So all of these things have to be understood as, as relating to one another, and it just sounds rather odd to our, uh, to our ears. So if you understand it that way, it only primarily related to sexual relations between a man and a woman who was married to another man. But in the church age, this helps us understand why there, part of why there's a shift. In the church age, we're not under the Mosaic Law, and these tribal and inheritance rights related to the Mosaic Law in Israel don't apply. This is why the death penalty for adultery no longer applies. The death, the penalty was so egregious for adultery was because it would have such a devastating impact on, on the economy of the whole country and the property rights and inheritance rights. It, it was an attack that would disrupt the entire structure of society, both in terms of marriage and in terms of family. So the laws related to adultery in the Torah must be understood in, uh, with, with these tangential issues that are not part of our thinking in the modern world. But in this discourse, what we see is Jesus addresses it both here in Matthew 5 and later in Matthew 19. He recognizes that a, ma- that a man is culpable of adultery whether he's married or not or whether the, uh, Woman that he's having sexual relations with is married or not. So he's giving a broader definition to adultery than what was understood in the Mosaic law. And this, as Jesus addresses this, he addresses the more fundamental issue, which is righteousness in the area of sexual lust and its implications for marriage and divorce and in so doing so, and in so doing he is challenging the uh, superficial approach of the pharisees which said you've only committed adultery if you ha- engage in the actual act they again just like with murder they ignore mental attitude lust and the sin of mental attitude lust so jesus again is pointing out that the superficial approach of the pharisees it still results in breaking the law and, as he termed it earlier in Matthew 5:19, breaking the least of these commandments. They're minimizing what it means to obey the commandments, but it still renders people culpable of violating the commandments if they're following the tradition of the rabbis. So Jesus says in verse 28, But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already... It's not looking at her to lust with her is the committing of adultery in the mind. He's already committed adultery in his mind. That is what precedes the lust. And the word here for lust is the word epithumeo, which can refer positively to the desire for something good, but in a number of passages it emphasizes something negative, the lust patterns of the sin nature. And the idea here is looking on someone, on a woman to lust for her, is not looking on someone, a beautiful woman appreciating her beauty. It, it is looking on someone in a way that stimulates sexual desire. And it proceeds from the mental attitude and the sin nature. It is not, adultery is not just a physical act. Matthew fifteen nineteen, Jesus says that it is out of the heart that this proceeds and here the word heart refers to the inner man just as we often use the word heart to describe the core of something uh, uh, we talk about hearts of palm uh, so that refers to the inner part of the of the palm tree we talk about the heart of an issue we're talking about the core part of a of a difficult topic and so th- the concept of heart refers to the innermost uh, mental area of uh, the thinking of the soul and it can include the thinking of this are the results of the sin nature. So Jesus says out of the heart, which is the mental attitude response to the temptation of the sin nature out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, overt sin begins in the soul when the soul responds to the temptation of the sin nature. So Jesus changes, uh, changes the significance here of adultery, that it's not just overt and physical, it starts in the mind. Now in verse 29, he's going to emphasize the seriousness of this sin. And this is a verse that of course has caused people a lot of problems in trying to interpret it, and it's a great example of uh, the need to understand idioms, and figures of speech when interpreting the scripture, there have been problems in the church age with people who have interpreted this literally, and they have engaged in various acts of dismemberment and castration, thinking that that would make them more spiritual. but that violates the very uh, principle Jesus is teaching, which is uh, to to challenge this superficial external application of of, of, of scripture. So in Matthew 5.29, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now remember, let's look at that last part first. Remember, this is not a good translation. We covered this before. It doesn't say hell in the original language. In Greek, it says the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. From the Hebrew, Geh, Hinnom, Geh means valley. Hinnom is a valley located uh, in Jerusalem to the south and uh, and west of the city. And so it makes more sense for us. If we translate it, hell, we're thinking that this has some sort of eternal consequence. It's not talking about an eternal consequence. If you change the, the last phrase there, Jesus is saying, if you don't deal with this problem, then you're in danger of of the valley of Hinnom. Now, the valley of Hinnom was a location in the Old Testament where the kings of Judah under Manasseh and following set up the idol to Moloch and where they would uh, offer their children as live uh, burned, burning sacrifices uh, in the fires of Moloch. And this symbolized a place of spiritual depravity and spiritual rebellion where God punished Israel because in 586 when the uh, Babylonians came in under Nebuchadnezzar, when they killed and slaughtered uh, hundreds of thousands of Jews, their bodies were thrown in the same place that they had immolated their, their children and that became a place of temporal punishment or divine discipline on the nation. So when we think of the Valley of Phenom, it's not hell, which is eternal punishment. It is a place of temporal punishment where God brought divine discipline upon the nation. So just as hell is an interpretation by many people of what the Valley of Phenom represented, I'm going to give you another interpretation that what Jesus is saying here is that you will be in danger of divine discipline, maybe even the sin unto death. That's what the Valley of Hinnom represented in terms of Israel's spiritual failure, a place of divine discipline, and maybe it led to the the, the sin unto death in the Old Testament. So the Valley of Hinnom, as I pointed out, was not used as a reference to eternal condemnation and the lake of fire in the Old Testament, but a place of divine discipline on the nation of Israel for their spiritual failure. So as we look at this this verse, when Jesus is speaking, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, and then later in verse 30, he says, if your right hand causes you to sin. What's this thing about the right hand? You guys who are southpaws, you get off a little easier on this. But the assumption is that most people are right-handed. So the right eye is is more dominant than the left eye. The right hand is more significant because most of what a person does, especially in an in a, uh, agricultural environment, is done with the right hand. It's very important, very difficult. If you're a warrior, the right eye is your aiming eye, if you're shooting a bow and arrow, and your right hand is your sword-wielding hand. Uh, Josephus tells the story of a king that when he captured enemy soldiers would put out their right eye. This was a form of uh, disarmament because you were no good as a soldier if you lost your right eye because you'd hold your shield up with your left hand. Your left eye would be behind the shield and you'd look around with your right eye and you would expose yourself even more if you had to come out like this. And if you couldn't use your, your right hand to carry your sword, then you were in trouble of being destroyed. So it was a way of of uh, disarming your opponent, if you captured them, you took away your, their right eye and their right arm. So in Jewish tradition, the right eye and the right arm are significant because they are what you're able to you, you use in order to accomplish great things in life. So in terms of the idiom, what Jesus is saying is that... Uh, You need to look at whatever you have in life that is valuable to you, and if it is a source of sin for you, you need to be willing to get rid of it in your life. No matter how important it may be to you, if it causes you to stumble in sin, then you need to be willing to remove it from your life because nothing is more important for your spiritual life than walking in obedience to God and producing righteousness through, as a Christian, through your walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. It's a simple idiom. We have seen other idioms in the scriptures. For example, circumcising the heart. That doesn't mean to literally go in and cut something away from your heart. It has to do with removing <laughs> sin, uh, from your life. And it was used as a parallel in Colossians to the baptism by the Holy Spirit, which removes the power of the sin nature uh, from our life. doesn't remove the sin nature from our life, but it removed the power of the sin nature from our life. We have other idioms in English. Uh, Idioms don't, we we don't translate an idiom literally because it, but it always has the same meaning. For example, if you tell someone um, uh, to go jump in the lake, that's an idiom. You're not talking about anybody literally jumping or literally going into a body of water. It has a meaning in and of itself to go away, leave me alone, uh, you're, 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 you're wasting my time. And, and whenever anybody uses that idiom, it always has that same meaning and that same, same significance. So it's a non-literal statement that has a consistent meaning. But we understand that because that's part of our language. So the same thing for Valley of Hinnom. This had a, it was a literal place, but it had a, a meaning that was not necessarily related to physically being cast into the Valley of Hinnom. So the idea of, uh, plucking out your right eye or cutting off your right hand, Jesus is not advocating dismemberment. He's simply saying that which is in your life, no matter how valuable or significant it may be, if it causes you to stumble in your spiritual life, then you need to remove it. You need to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and remove the sin that so easily causes us to stumble. That's Hebrews twelve one and 2. Having concluded that... Jesus, uh, oh, furthermore, in talking about the right eye, this it has significance because in biblical thought, the eye is where knowledge and information enters into the soul. Therefore, it can be the source of something good in terms of knowledge or it can be the source of something evil in terms of temptation. In 1 John 2.16, we read that for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Lust of the flesh refers to the lust patterns of the sin nature. Lust of the eyes refers to that which is stimulated by what we see. What we see can stimulate various kinds of lust. We can go to a store and see things that we really want, and it stimulates materialism lust. We can uh, open up certain magazines and see uh, men or women, and it stimulates sexual lust. So the eyes are to be protected. Uh, Ezekiel 6, 9 is an Old Testament passage. that talks about the role of the eye. Uh, in that passage, we read, Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive, because I was crushed by their adulterous heart, which has departed from me, and by their eyes which play the harlot after their idols. So here we not only see the concept of prostitution and adultery being used for spiritual unfaithfulness, but the idea that it is through their eyes uh, that this influences their thinking and influences and stimulates their sin nature. Job 31.1, Job says, gives us the corrective. He says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? What he is saying is that we should make a covenant with ourselves that we are not going to allow ourselves to look on that which may stimulate sexual lust in our, in our thinking. So this, this excludes everything from uh, pornography to certain movies, television shows, things that we read in, in certain novels and certain books where they go through a lot of graphic descriptions about uh, sexual activity all of this should be excluded because this just provides a an opportunity for lust to develop and Jesus says this is so important not to get involved in this that you need to do whatever is necessary to remove those sources of temptation from your life. Matthew 5:30 just repeats this in a second way indicating the emphasis that God has on this. He doesn't Jesus doesn't say it one way and stop, he says it Two different ways. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cast it from you. He's not talking about dismemberment. He's saying remove that which is valuable if it is a hindrance to your spiritual life, if it causes you to sin. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into the valley of Hinnom. To paraphrase this, whatever in your life causes you to sin or brings temptation into your life that you easily succumb to, you need to get rid of it because otherwise you're going to constantly be sinning and it's going to be a source of divine discipline and maybe even lead to the sin unto death having spoken about adultery jesus then goes on to talk about adultery within the framework of divorce and he gives uh, lays this down in two verses in this section let me uh, remind you that when jesus talks about uh, divorce and adultery here and in Matthew 19, he is specifically dealing with the questions that are raised by the uh, rabbinical interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 and the prohibition of divorce. He's not giving a an exhaustive treatment of marriage and divorce. That's sort of a background understanding that we need to have. In Matthew 5.31, Jesus says, Furthermore, It has been said, this is the oral tradition, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This certificate of divorce was intended uh, to restrict casual divorce under the Mosaic Law, which would hinder the woman's freedom to remarry. So Deuteronomy 24, 1 and 2 gives a framework within the Mosaic Law for divorce. So Jesus says the the interpretation on the one hand from the from the rabbis uh relates to what it means to give a certificate of divorce, but Jesus says on the other hand giving his uh, divine viewpoint interpretation of the passage, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced for any, what that means in context, who is divorced for any reason other than sexual immorality, commits adultery. This goes back to understanding Deuteronomy 24, uh, 1 and 2. In the law, the principle is laid down that when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and there's a I could spend three weeks talking about all the interpretations of that, so I'm just hitting the high points, uh, usually interpreted to be uh, sexual immorality of some sort. He has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. If the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who he took her as his wife. In other words, first guy marries her, says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to divorce you. Here's your certificate of divorce. You're out of the house. She goes and marries somebody else. Then he decides he's going to divorce her or he dies. The first guy can't go back and remarry her. That's the bottom line of these four verses. So Jesus is addressing this, and he says there's only one, uh, one legitimate reason here, and he's tying this, the exception of sexual immorality, he's tying this back to the verbiage in Deuteronomy 24:1. The word here translated sexual immorality is the word pornēia, from which we get our word uh, pornography. Now, part of the background on this. Is that there's a, was a debate that took place within Second Temple Judaism as to what were legitimate grounds for divorce. And just as today, the, their, their opinions, uh, covered the, the gamut of options. And there was on the one side, the school of Hillel that said if the wife cooks her husband's food poorly, by over-salting or over-roasting it, she is to be put away. In other words, if she burns the toast for breakfast, she's out of here. Any reason whatsoever that you're unhappy, that's it. That's legitimate. On the other end of the spectrum was Rabbi Shemai, who taught that divorce was permitted only on the grounds of adultery. Then there was Rabbi Akiva, who comes just after the New Testament period, and he allowed divorce uh, even if the husband finds someone fairer than his wife. So basically Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Hillel had the very uh, liberal view And Rabbi Shammai had the more conservative view. By the way, this halal is the same halal when I talked about the little sandwich last week with the matzo bread and the horseradish. They call it the halal sandwich. It's named after that rabbi. Just a little side note. Um, So, and then another thing was everybody always tries to get around the law. Whatever it is, if God says don't do this, well, what are the exceptions? How can I get around it? What can I do? Well, there was a, a, a twist on this, uh, is described by Rabbi Sforno, who was a rabbi in the Middle Ages, who in his uh, interpretation and explanation of Deuteronomy 24 uh, gives us a new twist on it. He said, this is an abomination that what was really going on here was that they were trying to get around this prohibition of adultery. And it was an ancient form of wife-swapping, so that if a man was married to a woman and she wanted to have an affair with this other man, uh, she, was, she would be worthy of the death penalty if she had a sexual affair while she was married to the first husband. So he writes her a divorce. She goes off and she marries the other guy but then just so she can have an affair with him for a while. But then he can write her certificate of divorce and she can go back to the first husband. And they were doing this back and forth in order to get around the law to give it sort of a superficial obedience. And uh, uh, so nobody would be guilty of adultery and therefore be stoned. Uh, so they were just sort of engaged in this ancient, uh, ancient uh, immorality and wife swapping. So, There's different things that are going on in this particular passage, and by this law, it prohibits the wife who's divorced for coming back to the first husband. That's really the ultimate thrust of Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Now, Jesus gives this exception here, and in Matthew 19, 9, he points out that this applies also to the husband. He said, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality... Now, the Mark and Luke passages, parallels to both of these, don't give the exception clause. But the full statement is given by Jesus in Matthew uh, 5 and Matthew 19. There are some people today who want to kind of ignore that. They want to say there's no divorce, no remarriage for any reason. Uh, this is not uh, what Jesus is saying. He is saying that there is, based on the Old Testament law, there is a legitimate exception clause. Just because there's a set, an exception clause, if there is infidelity in the marriage, doesn't mean you have to get divorced. This is what Jesus is emphasizing, is the standard for God is, is, is monogamy for life, that, that grace should overcome infidelity. Forgiveness and restoration is often much greater, and it may be more painful, but in the long run, it can be much greater. So just because there's a r- reason... That you could divorce doesn't mean you should divorce. And this is not, as I pointed out, an exhaustive uh, analysis or an exhaustive treatment of divorce and remarriage and exception passages. So I just want to give you a brief four-point summary on what the Scripture teaches in this area. First of all, as I pointed out, in the gospel passages, Jesus is addressing the problem of superficial application of the law by the Pharisees in the matter of divorce. He's not giving an exhaustive treatment on the topic of marriage and divorce. He's just pointing out the superficial nature of the Pharisees' application. The second point is addressing a problem that is common to history where human beings uh, want to minimize the lifetime monogamous commitment between one man and one woman in order to make marriage and remarriage more convenient and to legitimize their lust patterns. So he's addressing that, and he's saying, look, marriage is uh, originally designed by God, one man, one woman, not two men, not two women. Or did you see the news this last week, three women up in Massachusetts? Okay, that, that's what we always said was once you break down the definition of marriage so it's no longer between one man and one woman, you can eventually make it anything. One man, a boy, a woman, adult woman, and a small child. You can make a human, animal, all kinds of things. Now we have three women, two have been married the other has gone through the marriage ceremony but not the legal civil ceremony, so it's not technically polygamy, but that's where we always said this was headed. It's going to legitimize polygamy. So you have uh, three lesbians in a polygamous relationship in Massachusetts. And this is, look, this is only the beginning, everybody. It, it, we're going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah before this is done. So anyway, back to this. Jesus is addressing this problem because the lust pattern of the sin nature wants us to say, hey, if I get uncomfortable in my marriage, if there's a problem, let me just get rid of the person and I'm going to go find something better. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And Jesus said, no, the standard for God is one man, one woman together for life. Now, God recognizes that because of sin and the hardness of our heart, that there are situations and circumstances where a uh, divorce is going to take place and is legitimate. So third, what Jesus is teaching here, just to reiterate what I just said, and in Matthew nineteen three through 9, Jesus clearly affirms the standard of God is a lifetime monogamous commitment. However, under point 4, the exception clause recognizes the realities of sin. Now, I believe that based on Jesus' teaching here and Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 14 and 27 to 28, that divorce is permissible for several reasons, including sexual sin, desertion, abuse, and some forms of criminality. Divorce does not necessarily entail the right to remarriage. What happens in this passage is that we see and from the scriptural teaching is I, I believe that the right to remarry occurs if the cause for the divorce is sexual immorality or desertion. There are other reasons why it may be the right thing to do to, to divorce. We, it, it, sometimes it's the, we would say the right thing to do is to separate, but in terms of certain state laws that have uh, uh, common property rights, for financial reasons, there's no such thing as really having a legal separation because there's still uh, the common rights in terms of property. And so a divorce needs to take place in order to protect the wife's assets, especially if there are children involved from a husband. Uh, many different circumstances where divorce may be the way t- uh, to uh, bring safety to a situation where there's abuse but it may not, the circumstances may not entail a right to remarriage, but it may be necessary in order to have safety or security for the wife and and the children. But it is not the preferred solution. The per- preferred solution is through reconciliation. So even though situations may be present which provide a justification for divorce, this does not mean that the couple should or must divorce. Reconciliation. Forgiveness, this is all under grace orientation, and growth through and past the sin is always preferable to divorce. On the one hand, while divorce and separation may be legitimate, not all legitimate reasons for divorce entail the right to remarry but in all cases grace dominates because a question that always comes up at this point is people say well well what if i'm divorced and remarried i never heard any of this before i was divorced and remarried before i was saved or i was divorced and remarried after i was saved but i was foolish i was uh i was clearly wrong now i'm remarried what if i was wrong what if i didn't have the legitimate right to to remarry uh well the bible teaches grace and that god forgives us of all sin we just do confront that sin just like we do any other sin in our life. We confess the sin, God forgives us, and we move on from where we are. We don't try to go back and correct things by, uh, divorcing the current spouse. So we are, again, we don't make matters worse by making more bad decisions. We just confess it and move on, and God deals with us in grace where we are, because that's the point of the whole gospel. Christ paid the penalty for our sins. We all sin. Divorce, Divorce and remarriage are not, uh, unique sins. They are not capital sins. They are not unforgivable sins. And one of the tragedies in the modern evangelical church as a overreaction to the way in which we have deal, uh, minimized the importance of fidelity in marriage is, is to, um, now, one of the ways in which we've, we've reacted to this is to say that all divorce and remarriage is wrong, and if you've divorced and remarried, you can't do anything in the church. Uh, you, you become a second-class Christian, and this is common in many areas of, of Christianity today. It's a total loss of grace. Uh, the, the sin of divorce and remarriage, if it is a sin, the circumstances were not biblically legitimate, is no uh, different in terms of the righteousness of God than any other sin we just confess it and we move on and god if we're still alive god still has a plan for our life and we can still be used in christian service in any and every way as long as we're walking with the lord the bottom line is grace in the spiritual life just like grace and salvation with our heads bowed and our eyes closed father thank you for this opportunity to study these things This morning, to reflect upon them, to reflect upon your grace, and to be reminded that that you have a standard for our lives, righteousness for salvation. We only get that by trusting in Christ, and we receive the imputation of his righteousness, but also righteousness for spiritual life, for our spiritual growth, and preparation for our future destiny with you in the kingdom and in eternity. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things as believers that we need to press on to spiritual maturity. And, Father, also we pray for those who may be here or unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid your penalty on the cross so that by simply trusting in him you can have eternal life, an eternal life that can never be taken from you, no matter what we do, because Christ paid for all sin. And, Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.